This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Luxury Plane Crash by Scarfo. And I think this is far too aggressive. Yeah, yep, yep. Lined up against all that. I think if you went back to 94, yep. this would probably, I don't know that it would have been a smash hit, but it would have gotten more college play at least. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we've discussed prior to this show, on previous shows, even on previous recordings of this show that didn't quite make it, uh, that there are certain bands that fit perfectly the charter of what Dig Me Out stands for. And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, tonight's band that we're recording is a prime example of a dig uh, one something we've dug out actually was dug out for us by a couple of listeners norman frazier and alex gibson dug this one out for us and i'm speaking of scarfo you and i we were not familiar with scarfo before this podcast correct Mm, that is correct all right so and i'm gonna guess that 99 percent of our listeners were not familiar with scarfo even if you would have told me that a band, there was a band that existed that was called Scarfo, I would have said bullshit. <laughs> it like doesn't even sound real. It sounds like a band that would be in a movie. Or The Simpsons. Or The Simpsons, yes. But no, there was a band. They were called Scarfo, and they actually have an interesting lineage, which we will get to in the history of the band. History of the band. So Scarfo Scarfo formed in Andover, England in 1994 by Jamie Hintz, remember that name, on vocals and guitar, Nick Pryor on bass, and Al Saunders on drums. They moved from Andover to London to start gigging, and they signed with Fierce Panda Records to release their first single. Shortly after that, they signed to Deceptive Records, which at the time was the home of Elastica, uh, to release their first full-length album and started recording and by the time they were done recording the album and ready to release it drummer al sanders was hit by a car in london and it stopped the band cold in their tracks they couldn't play any shows and the album was delayed so they was finally came out in november of 1996 the self-titled scarfo album on deceptive records and then the following july in 1997 they released their second album which we're reviewing luxury plane crash also on deceptive records the momentum from the, or the the car accident involving El Sanders sort of killed the momentum of the band. They had some press around their first single, but it took so long to get the to get the albums out that they ended up breaking up in 1998. Now the interesting thing is, Jamie Hintz, the lead singer and guitar player, went on to form a band called The Kills, which is a current band that you probably know from the radio, uh, more likely. Indian college radio, or if you listen to Sirius, Sirius XMU would be a channel you might hear the kills on. So, that's the brief history of Scarfo. A couple of other interesting notes. Uh, Jamie Hintz went to college with one Brian Mulko, who was in, or is in, Placebo. So these two bands were sort of gigging around the same time and playing together, and... One band became, I guess, semi-popular, scored a few singles, and 
was able to build a pretty decent career, and the other one fell apart after two records. So, Jay, mm. do you think that when we dug out Scarfo, that we dug out a shining diamond in the rough, or is this merely a piece of crappy... <laughs> what's the opposite of a diamond? What's the opposite of a diamond? Is this just a polished turd, I guess? Mm. What's what? What's your take on Scarfo? Uh, I think we dug up a good one. Um, a lot of a lot of interesting elements here. A lot of uh, cool influences and sounds come to mind when I listen to this band, particular for the time. Makes it pretty unique. I, I think there were some bands we'll get to at the end of the show that I think you know do some similar things this band but they didn't come around until maybe 10 years later mm-hmm. um so some of the stuff i'm hearing or you know vocally there's there's a lot of influence from the jam yes the jam that is a big one um which is really really cool um very very english sort of approach to vocals um almost spoken word at times um you know the accent plays a big part of how it's all delivered and the attitude of it but then it's juxtaposed against this music that's at times, you know, reminded me of like Swerve Driver. At times, it reminded me of Jawbox. Like it had a post-hardcore feel to it mm-hmm. in terms of what's going on with the guitars. Uh, you know, he does a lot of like really interesting harmonics and um, muting uh, of, of the guitar strings to create like different strange sounds. And you know, it's kind of rhythmic but kind of chimey. Um, and then they you know, go into some fuzzy stuff for the for the choruses and. Uh, it gets a little bit, in terms of uh, like Swerve Driver, it gets a little bit thick and layered and dissonant at times. And so there, there's this really cool juxtaposition of, of the music that, uh, music and a, and a vocal that you don't normally hear put together very much. I think the, you know, I like a lot of the record. There's some moments in the middle where it starts to wander a little bit for me into some strange areas. Yeah. Uh, Jazz Cigarette is one. It's an yeah. instrumental, and it sounds like I, I wrote spy movie spaghetti western. <laughs> it's like a surf guitar kind of thing. Yeah. And there's a slow song before that that isn't very good. I mean, it's fine, but it's, it's just not that interesting. So, you know, I, I think the, the first four songs, I think, start off really strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you go through a, a down period on the record for three or four songs, and then it kind of picks up again at the end. It's definitely an interesting album. I, I would, you know, it'd be interesting had this band continued where it would have went to. But uh, what'd you think? I, I was really surprised by how much I like this record. Uh, the first time I listened to it, it kind of just went by and I didn't pick up on a lot. And I, mm-hmm. then I listened to it again, but I, I got it a little louder and I listened, I really focused on what he was doing on the guitars. And I, mm-hmm. the thing that it sounded like to me, it sounded like the jam, but it sounded like Joey Santiago from the Pixies was playing yeah. with the jam. Like he does so many weird phrasings and accents and he's the playing is really really unique. And I guess yeah. that's to be expected because his guitar playing with the kills, it's combining a lot of weird elements. It's like there's an element of industrial thump to it and then there's these bluesy, you know, very uh, almost like black keys style guitar riffs going on in, in that band and mm. You know, I I would I'd love to just like kind of sit down and dissect his playing sometime because it's it's really unique and and kind of special 
and it's all mm-hmm. over this. I mean, I, I've made a note next to every song that includes a description of the guitar part, either being that's a cool guitar part, really like the dissonant part here, uh, you know, like the accents. Like, there's always something that he's doing in every song, guitar-wise, that mm-hmm. is unique. That doesn't sound like yeah. oh, that's just four chords, or eh, that's just like a four-note, you know, lead over a couple chords. Like he's really doing some really aggressive. Like I think the jawbox thing, I didn't really think about that. I was thinking more of like we mentioned it being very British sounding. Mm. So I brought up like the jam is the obvious one, but then there's like Gang of Four and Wire. The Buzzcocks were one that came up uh, with a lot, yeah. and then like Mission of Burma, which is not a British band, but some of the weirdness that mission of burma did especially on the first uh record kind of came through Now, th- there was an interesting thing that I did mention in the ramp up is that this album was originally supposed to be recorded with Nigel Goodrich, but Jamie Hintz backed out. Either he didn't want to work with the guy or he got cold feet about working with him or just didn't like what, the, what he was suggesting that they do. So Goodrich left, and then the next record he went to go work on was OK Computer. Wow. Yeah, so... There's a uh, bit of this band being like close to, you know, putting it together and then not quite getting there. You know, friends with Brian Molko, you know, having the car accident, almost working with Nigel Goodrich, being on the same label as Elastica. Yeah. You know, they were they were almost there. And I it's weird because I think a lot of the like we mentioned like the, the vocals being very British, but the music is very American indie rock. Yeah. yeah. Which I is always a weird combination it reminds me a little bit of curb dog in that sense where curb dog to me sounded very much like a 90s post-punk helmet style band but not with you know but they were you know from the uk which was not the sound that that was real popular then so i don't know that they ever really had a chance in terms of their home country to to bust through i know that the first single did well enough to get them into some magazines and to get some play, but I don't think that this album, especially being the second one, I don't think it did a lot for them, which is just too bad because, you know, we haven't mentioned a lot of specific songs, but you mentioned the first four, which are ELO, Jet Smashed Flat, Alkaline, and Safecracker. All of those have really cool guitar parts. They're all a little bit different. I really like the chorus in Alkaline where he sings, uh, Nostalgia Must Die, is the way he delivers it. Shoot me gently, low high, nostalgia must die. Shoot me gently, alkaline, 
that, is a band that's, that's not oh. playing to, you know, is, is not like looking back. As much as we've mentioned like older bands like The Jam, they're very much a modern sounding band for like whatever, 1996 or 97. And that's a song that um, I think that I didn't know. Safe Cracker, I believe. It started to, uh, at least in the choruses, and then again at the at the end of the record, the choruses started to have a almost a. You, you could hear the Britpop influence in there as they you know mm-hmm. they they, um, they get to writing hooks and they get to writing songs that are a little bit more you know memorable, a little less, uh, you know about performance and parts and you know interesting guitar gymnastics or whatever you, however you want to refer to it and get into actually trying to write like particularly with alkaline uh maybe even prison architect where they're you know they're more trying to hone in on chorus and write something memorable definitely hear you separate away some of the um some of the angular aspects of the band you can kind of hear just in the melodies and the, and the vocal approaches some of the uh, the brit pop influence in there which was kind of a, a cool you know element that came out uh, as you listen deeper and deeper to it uh, i will say that uh you know the little factoid there about nigel godrich and him potentially had or was supposed to produce this album and didn't end up doing it that's really unfortunate because i think one of the i think my big the biggest drawback to it is the production oh yeah particularly with the bass i mean the bass just it's it's such an important part of the band and it just sounds really bad <laughs> like it's just a bad bass tone i think if this album had been produced better you know it didn't have to be okay computer but just you know if it, somebody come in and just captured some better sounds you know i think it would have been I think it would have came across a lot better. I, I think even your first comment where you said, you know, you listen to it a couple of times and it sort of washes over you and then you have to crank it and really listen to pay attention, you know, to the guitars and try to focus in on some things. And then you sort of get drawn in where I think if it had been produced a little bit better, it would have jumped out at you a lot faster. So I think that's my only uh, criticism of it outside of, you know, a couple songs that are, aren't great is just the production is not, uh, not fantastic. Now, one band that reminded me of them that that was from that time was Supergrass. Hmm. They're a bit more. Supergrass had a bit more, I guess, poppiness to them. 
Now, yeah. this is around the time when the... This is after I Should Coco and... What was the second album? In It For The Money? Is that what that was called? The one that had uh, all the singles on it? Yep, yep, yep. So that was a bit more of a diverse record, but it, it had elements that this record has. A little more relaxed, a little bit more drawing from, I guess, the you know, the jam... When we mentioned the jam, we're talking about a specific element of the jam, which is the more yeah. aggressive stuff. But they also had, you know, the That's Entertainment side and A Town Called Malice mm-hmm. side, which was, I think, more of where Supergrass was coming from in terms of their, if you were talking about a, a jam influence, whereas yeah. this is definitely more of the, the, the punker, punkier side of the jam. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the only band that I could think of that was a contemporary that in any way, shape, or form was close to yeah what, what they right. were because I never thought of Supergrass as really being a Brit pop band. I always thought of that as more as Blur and Oasis and Pulp and Suede yeah. and and those sorts of bands were more of like those really the Brit pop of that era. And I you yeah. can't I don't really think you can classify this as they might be British but they're not Brit pop in any way. Right, like Supergrass were there. Were their well, I mean, their influences were a little bit more uh, classic rock, obviously. You know, the Who and right, the Jam, you know, that sort of stuff, and that came out a little bit more on them. Plus, they had a, I don't know, they had sort of a tongue-in-cheek sense sense to them too, and kind of set them off. But yeah, that I can't really think of, God, any other bands at that time. Now, <clears throat> maybe this is the part of the show to start talking about, you know. Now I think there actually are some bands that kind of sound like this band, which is interesting. Like, yeah, think, there are. That's I thought of weird. Ar- Arctic Monkeys, you know, the whole time I was listening to this and couldn't help but think of how that's kind of playing with similar elements that that this band was playing with. Even bands like the Editors and stuff like that and were the, the Future Heads and Block Party, yeah. Art yeah. Brute. Yeah, so there's a lot of bands that kind of. Not, I mean, you know, Block Party's gotten away from, I think, more on their first record and and maybe their second record. They've turned into kind of a, I don't know, um, they've in, introduced a lot of electronic elements, yeah. let's put it that way, into the music. So it's it's like Muse light in a lot, and musically in a lot of ways. But a song like Track 9, Peo Gear, you know, it's very Gang of Four-ish. Mm-hmm. It's got a feel to it. And, that's the bouncy bass line that's going on yeah, there. That's, you know... That's on par with what what Block Party did for sure. Oh, yeah. Or with that. Yeah, the editors was I, I had that one down. I guess another band that is a contemporary, although they were a little later in the '90s, but is Ash. Mm. They they they're a little bit more eclectic in their sound. Mm. I have a hard time pinning them down exactly what their 
always going for. But you know, they they, they definitely would fit in with this band and and Supergrass and uh, the other bands they mentioned. So before we get to our rating, let's talk about why don't you think that this band, aside from the fact that they had a bad, they had an accident, they had some bad luck. Yeah. What do you think holds this band back at the time from being bigger? Why didn't this make a dent? Why wasn't this? For all I know, this could never have been even. This might not have even been released in the United States. But why do you think that this didn't catch on? Boy, I I guess I kind of go back to my comment about the production, and and more so from the aspect of um, I really like that it the they do have a just a weird dissonant aspect to them, where even when they're playing things that are kind of straightforward. Uh, the way that the the bass and the guitar, I, the chords they're playing against each other, and maybe even some of the layering going on, there's always like a slightly just you know dissonant aspect to it, which I th- I find pretty you know interesting and makes it distinctive. Yeah, I, I can kind of see that combined with you know production that's not exactly big and full and bassy and you know mm-hmm. pumping speakers um, would might make it easy to put on you know to give it a shot on uh you know college radio at the time or even you know alternative radio so i I think it may have some you know maybe bad luck combined with that i I definitely think there's a couple songs on here oh had they been produced a little better um and maybe just tightened up a little bit would have worked what do you think i agree with that i also think that this is a hard band to market whether it's an American band or a UK band, I think that they don't fit nicely in 1997 when this comes out into a particular genre right. for that time. I think it's a little bit about timing for this. What was, what was going on in 97? 97 is when, well, in the, in the United States, that's when you've got like the second Foo Fighters record. But it's also when you've got the rise of, you know, Britney Spears and Hanson and the Backstreet mm. Boys. And yeah. I think Marilyn Manson has a, has the second record out. Is that right? Or is that the first? Is, not the second record, but the that when the big record came out. Let's see here. I got a, I'm not sure. I have a, on Wikipedia, the mo- number one rock, modern rock hits of 97 were uh, Garbage. Okay. YouTube, Discotech. Live, Lakini's Juice, The Ooh. Wallflowers, U2, Staring at the Sun, The Verb Pipe. This is like basically when we're in college. Third Eye Blind, God, they dominated. Matchbox 20. So we're starting to get into that like, like post Third tier stuff. of post grunge. Sugar Ray, Smash Mouth. So you had that like retro, you know, pop rock stuff. Chumbawamba, Everclear was every second Marcy Playground. So yeah, that was kind of an odd time. And I think this is far too aggressive. Yeah, yep, yep. Lined up against all that. I think if you went back to 94, yep. this would probably, I don't know that it would have been a smash hit, but it would have gotten more college play at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and that maybe would have pushed it to like 120 minutes. Whereas I, I just don't think that this is, this was just getting lost in the noise at that point. So yep. let's rate this record. Uh, I, I'm on record as saying, as far as an album, an EP, or a single, I think this is a good album. I think there's a couple tunes. Like you mentioned, it gets a little dull in the middle. But this was 
after you know five or six listens, I was like, wow, this has got a lot of really good tracks, and I'm at least at least nine of them, maybe ten, that I think are definitely worth listening to. So I'm I'm ready to go. This might be one of the better records that we reviewed all re- all year, actually. So I'm making a bold statement. <laughs> Yeah, I th- it'll be interesting to see when we do the year-end wrap-up, just comparing this to some of the other stuff that, that I've liked so far this year and see how it stacks up. I'm with you. I'm at eight or nine songs that I like. There's a couple on here that there's probably two that I would skip, or there's two two others that I don't love but I'll listen to, and then all the rest I, I really find uh, pretty interesting and a good list. So I think it's a good album. And that's our review of Scarfo. If you enjoyed this particular episode, please head on over to iTunes and consider leaving us some feedback. We would greatly appreciate it. Positive feedback if you feel up to it. If you don't, uh, even lukewarm feedback. We'd like to avoid the negative feedback. That's fine. Jay, thanks for joining me. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.